You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For those listeners who follow social media much more than I do, there is an immensely popular Instagram account called Museum Bums. I always love a good play on words, but honestly, this one, when I first saw the phrase, I thought it was people who like to hang out at museums using bums to mean sort of vagrants. Of course, as soon as I started looking at the feed, I got that they were being a bit more playful. Uh, The Instagram account, now book, calendar, and cards, all focus on bums or butts in artworks. Because my show is intended for listeners of all ages, I feel like I should mention that while this episode does not contain any sort of profanity, there is a bit of cheeky humor, as my guests this week are Mark Small and Jack Shoulder, the creators of Museum Bums. I feel like who art ed? Who art is Mr. Wood art ed me? Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, weekly art history for all ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today I am very excited because on a podcast whose name is essentially a fart joke, I have Mark and Jack, the museum bums, joining me. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. This feels like a perfect match. No, we're very happy to be here. We we saw the title of the podcast going, yes, this is this is the one for us. We're we're very happy to start talking about bums yeah. on who who arted. <laughs> now I, I do have to ask, um, you know, you've got the book out, Museum Bums, and your Instagram account is super popular. What inspired you to look at the bum as the entry point into the art world? <laughs> good question i love how you phrase that um, <laughs> so for us there's a few different reasons why we've chosen the bum as our kind of way to explore art and art history so i've got a long um history working in museums working in learning and outreach and a big part of that job is kind of finding the hook to get Uh, to get your audience, to get young people actually interested in the stuff on the wall. Um, Sometimes that's pointing out some details. Sometimes that's responding to the energy in the room. Sometimes it's just about kind of finding something that will make people go, oh, wait, we we can talk about that. And sometimes (laughs) that's the bum. It opens up all sorts of questions, including, did the artist want us to see this? And 
if we look at you know the person being depicted are we allowed to see their bum or are we being a bit naughty in looking at this so for me it's one of those things it can be a little bit silly it can be a fun way into it but it opens up some really really big conversations yeah we were so one of the things about bums is they are universal pretty much everyone has got a bum <laughs> Um, lots of people keep telling us we should do book two about museum boobs or museum willies. We're kind of going, no, because that's only 50% of the population or whatever it is. So, but bums are universal. You, you, you can go into pretty much any art gallery in the world or museum or library or archive or cultural space. And you're pretty much guaranteed to find a bum there. And could be a woman-shaped bum, it could be a man-shaped bum, it could be a monster or a devil or a god or an angel. You know, there's there's going to be bums everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I got to say, I appreciate that because I am, you know, I'm an elementary art teacher by mm -hmm. my day job, so arts education as well. I'm totally used to trying to find that that hook to pull people in. Hence, you know, I am an authority figure with the mind of a child and name my <laughs> show a fart joke. But wow. it's a little bit of that taboo. It's a little bit transgressive, but I appreciate that it's just a little bit naughty and still yeah. in that way that like it's not off putting to people. Mm -hmm. And so I am going to say for those interested, um, you've got the museum bums on Instagram for people who are up with social media, which is not me, but um, <laughs> I'm also going to include in the links. I've, I've got um, links in the show notes. I will include the link for those who want to buy the book museum bums and you captured. I, I liked that you talked about, you know, men and women in in there in the inclusive look at art in art history mm -hmm. but it's also all times all cultures it is truly a universal sort of art history book and as an educator and an art lover i do appreciate that about the book um and i appreciate that you sent me a copy to look over i always <laughs> love having another book for my collection Absolutely. And hopefully it's a, it's a good coffee table book. It's got a good, good cover with mm -hmm. some, some conversation starters on the front covered in bums. Yeah. Um, we've also got the calendar, the 2024 calendar, which is available to buy now. Mm -hmm. um, and the note cards, which make perfect Christmas cards. Should you want to send Christmas bums to your friends, families, loved ones, enemies, ransom <laughs> notes, however you want to get it. All of the above. <laughs> Send it to your friends for a good laugh and send it, send it to your enemies for a bit of confusion. I love that. But um, I guess now we'll go on to our actual topic for today. We're talking about Man Ray, and eventually we'll get to his photograph, um, the, the Ingress's violin piece, um, which is in your book. But I always like to start off with a little bit of history. So Man Ray um, was not actually his given name. He was born Emmanuel Radznitsky, hopefully somewhere close on that pronunciation. Um, he was born August 27th in 1890 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, I, I guess the name Man Ray came about because like he was of Russian Jewish descent and, um, you know, history seems to just be constantly repeating its mistakes um there was a lot of anti-semitism and mm. the the family i guess changed the the name they they shortened it to ray 
Although he took man as a, like a based off his nickname, Manny um, mm-hmm. for Emmanuel. Okay. And he had, I guess, didn't like to talk about the, the anti-Semitism and the Jewish um, ancestry in that, because obviously he changed his name to avoid being on, on the other end of, of that. Um, he talked about Ray as like, referring to rays of light emanating and all sorts of flowery language there is where I guess that name comes from. That sounds like an artist. Yeah. 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 yeah, You always gotta, you always gotta have a better story behind it than like, we didn't want to be persecuted for our name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he's even sort of like, he's even upcycling the name change. But (laughs) in his early days, he showed a lot of talent in arts. Um, He went to the Ferrer School in New York, later studied the the Art Students League. I guess his art teacher saw a lot of promise and like he got uh, scholarship opportunities to study architecture. But he said, no, I'd rather be painting and doing all that avant-garde stuff that he would later become known for. But Mm -hmm. as a result of that choice, like he struggled a bit, especially financially in those early days. Can you imagine his family going, yeah, of course you can train to be an artist. That's fine. We don't want you to be a well-paid architect. No, you, you go for it. You, you, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I, I always feel like I'm, I'm reading all of these stories about different artists and it's like, they always seem to walk away from a promising, lucrative career. You know what I mean? Whether it's like Kandinsky was, you know, like all of these people are just a tremendous disappointment to their parents. But (laughs) art history is better for it. So Man Ray does his own thing. He's getting into that avant-garde art scene. He he goes to New York. He's in Greenwich Village. I guess he was really um, sort of smitten with the Armory show, like 1913. That's when, you know, we had like Marcel Duchamp's Nude Descending a Staircase, uh, Picasso's works in there. It, it was such a revelation for American artists and audiences to understand really modern art as we know it today. So... In 1915, then, he actually met Duchamp, and the two became friends. And I I guess that was a friendship that would go on for years, decades even. Um, And Man Ray became associated with the Dada movement. Now, this is one of those things that I didn't realize until I was forced to sit down and research Man Ray for this episode. (laughs) Because I always think of Man Ray as like the Rayograms, you know? I didn't realize he started off as like a Dadaist painter. Yeah. For me, that was like a forgettable thing. Like, I mean, his paintings were fine, but that wasn't like what he would become known for. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so then, you know, he relocates to Paris, 1921. He's in with all the surrealists, the surrealists. And I guess this would be a good time to talk about a little bit about his photography. He gets into photography initially because he's trying to document his paintings. Like it's just, it's cheaper to take your own pictures. You know? <laughs> And um, yeah, in 1921, he moves to Paris, um, gets in with the uh, surrealist um, set there, and he meets Kiki Montparnasse, who is the subject of the photo that we're going to be talking about later. 
And they had a like eight year relationship. It was a bit tumultuous, but you know, she was the muse for many, many of his works. He took loads of portraits of her, this just being one of them. And I think she appeared in about nine of his like experimental films as well. Mm-hmm. So like this is like a really, really big moment for him. And you know, um Kiki didn't just work with him, she worked with a lot of the other surrealist avant-garde artists in Paris at that time as well. So I feel like she was like a real key connection in um in Man Ray's work and how it really, really developed during this time. And I love that you're talking about developing as we get into the photography. So, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I always love a good pun. So, um, <laughs> as he's, yeah, he, he always seems to have some sort of a muse, the woman who's inspiring mm-hmm. him and his work. Um, you know, Kiki, the model for, for this photo was one of them. And then uh, Lee Miller was another one. And from what I've read, Lee Miller was really influential in the solarization. Um, yeah. the, there's a classic story that I I always wonder how true this is because it's just such a good story. A mouse ran across her foot while she was in the dark room and she flipped out for a moment, flashed on the light and then mm-hmm. turned it off is how I've always read it. And that's yeah. how they sort of rediscovered solarization and that <laughs> delightfully odd effect. I I love a, an origin story like that, you know, something really innocuous leading to like a whole new like technique or a rediscovery of something. And I'm sure it's been embellished, but like, I love that key, like, oh, it was, it was kind of like a happy accident moment. Um, so it, it gives, it gives good story. And it does. Yeah, it really does give a good story. And I think whether it's like a hundred percent exactly how it happened or not, on some level, I just, I, I got to sort of, my hat is off to a, an artist who understands that the story is part of what they're selling. Exactly, you know? yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it could be the truth or it could be what you want the truth to be. And that's still fine. <laughs> what, is, what is truth? What is truth? What is beauty? What, what is, is love? What is art? <laughs> oh, like this is so like perfect for the Dadaists where they were just questioning everything, breaking all the rules. I mean, Man Ray specifically said like he set out to break all of the rules of photography. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways he did. Um, the technique that is most famously associated with him is cameraless photography which i mean just on its face if you're not familiar sounds like an absurd proposition photography mm-hmm. without the camera um he called it a rayogram which i always wonder was this just like was he really that full of himself or was he just like <laughs> doing this kind of tongue in cheek because dada and surrealism was supposed to be so playful um mm-hmm. I prefer to think he's doing it a little bit ironically because otherwise it's a little hard for me to stomach. But the <laughs> the rayogram is another one that has a great story. He says that he was developing some photographs and like dropped a sheet of photographic paper. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's exposed, it's starting to develop. And he's like, oh, I cannot waste a single sheet. And so mm-hmm. he just starts throwing some objects on there and then discovers, oh, this basically a contact print makes an interesting, interesting silhouette and he's playing with the composition and sort of like moving things around and getting multiple exposures. Mm -hmm. He does it, I would say reasonably well, although I got to say personally, I absolutely hate looking at those. (laughs) Like I, 
I don't know how do you, how you guys feel about it. They're not my favorite pieces of art, but then my taste is a bit different. But yeah. I really like that you have such a strong reaction to them. <laughs> and I always think that like if a piece of art makes me feel something, anything, mm-hmm. then it's it's doing its job, it's making us feel. And that origin story of like, oh, I can't waste a single sheet. That very much speaks to me as a thrifty kind of person. It's like, okay, cool. I'm gonna make the mess best of this mess that I've got myself into is like, okay, cool. I've got some materials. Ah, I've got limited time on it. What can I do? So it, it, I, I enjoy them on that level. But in terms of like what I enjoy looking at, not always my taste. Yeah, this this kind of uh, Parisian starving artist uh, seeking the truth of surrealism is very like Moulin Rouge vibes. There, It's very uh, a community of Bohemians who are feel that they're more liberated than the rest of society and if they're kind of creating art by uh uh by raging against establishment and doing things that they want to do instead of what people have done before then that's that's fine by me (laughs) or if they've just dropped something and it's great or they've accidentally dropped something and go yeah yeah we'll call that art that's fine (laughs) yeah just the embrace of the chance you know that happenstance since i did it it must be great um (laughs) i guess i on some level i appreciate the scrappiness of it um you know like like you said the the fact that he's being thrifty and doesn't want to waste a single thing i i respect that i guess my personal visceral reaction is probably based on my own biography and my own history because I am a huge narcissist and look at everything through my own personal biography. But like I studied <laughs> I studied the chemistry of photography in college because I had to have a science class. And mm-hmm. I I look at the rayographs and it just reminds me of all the cringy pieces that I made because I didn't think <laughs> ahead and I didn't prep like any sort of negatives on on the transparency sheet so I was literally making like copper prints and stuff out of the lanyard and the change in my pocket because I didn't right. I didn't take 5 minutes to plan ahead to have something meaningful. Um no, you discovered something new. Imagine if you'd created the the new style of photography, then then you'd be loving it. <laughs> I I know, and 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 th- but that's also one of those things where it's like, well, I mean, his compositions were better than what I was doing at that time, but <laughs> still, they're not that great. I don't know. It there's, it feels to me like the rubbish that I was collecting, just, <laughs> and 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 I I. I cringe a little bit as I see it in the museums, but that's (laughs) neither here nor there. I guess when he did it, it was brilliant. Um, So he kept going with that, you know, doing his photography. Actually, in Paris, I guess he started doing more commercial photography, like portraits and stuff like that. He Mm -hmm. said, and I, I love the quote, he says, like, he would have been a gangster if he had the physique or the courage, but... (laughs) He didn't, so he took photos <laughs> yeah. to make the ends to make ends meet. Which, of course, why not? <laughs> I, I think that's the respectable choice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for the rest of his life, I mean, he, after the Nazi occupation of Paris, he came back to the U.S. For the rest of his life, he's really continuing to experiment with photography. Um, you know, he's in with everywhere he's going. He's in with 
wonderful other artists. I've already name dropped, um, you know, he was with Duchamp. He was with Lee Miller. I think he did some stuff with um, Salvador Dali, like all the big names of sort of um, that surrealist scene. He seemed to be a part of it. Um, And so I guess after the break, we'll get into a little bit more of the specific work as we will talk about, I cannot, it's Ingress's violin. Right. Yeah, is it Le Violon d'Ingres? I think it is if we're being pretentious. If we're being pretentious. <laughs> I'll let you guys handle that because my pronunciation, <laughs> I, I can, I barely have a grasp of the English language and, you know, talking to people from the UK, I just automatically feel inferior. So I'm not going to try to get to French <laughs> as well. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Now we're back talking again with the museum bums, Mark and Jack. We are looking at Man Ray's piece, Ingress's Violin. I'll leave the official title to you guys. Um, But you included this work in your book. Why did you feel this was a significant one? When you look at it, what do you see? What's jumping out at you? Good question. So, um... There's a lot of things that we really liked about Ingress's violin. We'll, we'll keep it with the with the English translation of because <laughs> my, my French accent is appalling. <laughs> um, so a few things we liked about it. One, it's a really iconic image. It's one that a lot of people recognize. Um, and we wanted to include some familiar pieces in the book, as well as some that would surprise our readers. And despite it being a really familiar piece, it's one that always kind of stops people in their tracks a bit because it's not just a simple portrait of a woman. Um, Man Ray is having a bit of fun with it. It's a little bit of a visual joke. There's a lot going on with it as well. So it's, you know, um, we're seeing a a lovely portrait of a woman's back, but we've got some F holes on it. So he's turned his, um, his model into a violin um and there's a really fun um visual kind of joke going on there but that kind of goes beyond just what we're seeing as well so ingres's violin in french it means you know someone's hobby um so it's a joke about hobby so we're seeing some visual jokes about man ray playing his model's body as a hobby maybe she's playing with his as well and that really speaks to the relationship between Man Ray and Kiki Montparnasse who we're seeing here Mm -hmm. we're seeing a lovely curvy back pretending to be a violin and I I gotta say that's one of those ones where as I look at the the play there I really hope he's doing that ironically and not just screaming, hey, you're an object to me, (laughs) because it's such a problematic stance. 
Yeah. It really is. And I, like you, I really hope that he's not saying, ha, you're an object. Because, like, if we look at Kiki's biography, oh, my God, what an amazing woman. Um, So she was born into poverty and she really kind of... um, brought herself up by a bootstrap she went out she earned a living she became this um artistic muse not just for Man Ray but for loads of surrealist artists working in Paris at the time but she went on to be a singer a business owner an artist in her own right she had exhibitions and they were very well received and I think just to reduce her to an object is really problematic but that it makes me really hope that there is a bit of playfulness between the two with them because from what i've read of kiki she feels like she'd either be in on the joke or possibly suggesting it to begin with so i really hope that there's some collaboration between the two yeah she was an artist in her own right she she had sellout exhibitions uh, kiki in in paris and you know sold her work sold every single piece in a 27 work show um she was a local celebrity she uh, eventually got crowned the queen of montparnasse yes there was there was a vote and she was crowned the queen of the neighborhood so it's like you go girl so she yeah she definitely has power we're going to give them all the benefit of the doubt and assume and hope that the the playing each other's bodies metaphor joke was was both ways hopefully they both had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I really appreciate that you are sharing her story too and giving her the, like, because, you know, so often you read about these people and it's like, oh, she was his muse, which is just like, eh, it's kind of dismissive. I mean, she was an artist in her own right. As you said, she had an mm-hmm. inspiring story. And I think a lot of people talk about these muses that, you know, if you don't really understand the artist's muse like uh, from the outside it looks like oh it's just a beautiful person that inspired them but usually it's there's an energy and it's a person who's bursting with ideas and that's what leads to the inspiration and there's there's that kind of chemistry and like collaboration between the two we've got a whole chapter in the book about um about venuses about depictions of venus yeah and tension between if it's a male artist or a male sculptor creating Venus, so it's presenting femininity, but it's through through a male gaze, mm-hmm. um, and how you know that tension between what femininity is to women, what femininity is to men, and this feels like uh, Man Ray's uh, Ingress's violin. Let's call it that. Yeah. Feels like it. Hopefully, has a middle ground of appreciating this beautiful female form. Mm-hmm. Um, albeit she doesn't have any arms, which fits it's, with fits with the violin metaphor, but also kind of brings to mind other pieces of work like the Velas de Milo, which famously armless. Yeah, still beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I the the thought that I had was um, I I thought of uh, I think it was Dali who's done some other photos where people are posed to make like a skull form and other stuff like that um, Mm -hmm. where you know different features recede into the the background I thought this was interesting because um, you know we've alluded to the fact that Man Ray experimented in so many different photographic methods and this one just because I I look at so much stuff at such a surface level of just how it was created. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what he did was he had her pose to take the photograph and then he painted the 
F holes, um, which are like, for those who don't know, it's the violin, um, those weird, fancy, swirly, curly cue holes that we see on a violin, the sound holes. Because I yeah. feel like saying F holes on a person it's, is so vulgar. I feel it, like I have it, to edit this out. Um, yeah, it, it, does, that clear. <laughs> it does sound like it should be much ruder than what it is. Yeah. But if you look at it, they're called F holes because they're holes that look like Fs. Yeah. Um, so he painted those to get the the visual cue of of that onto a photograph and then took a picture of that photograph. And that's mm -hmm. the final result that we see there. That, and that's another reason why why we picked this one for one of one out of nearly 200 images in the book. Yeah. Um, so this this represents, you know, now we talk about photo manipulation, photo editing adding filters on Instagram pictures, you can do it in a second and anyone can do it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a yeah, thing. It's not that it doesn't require artistic flair or integrity. You can give yourself lip filler. You can turn yourself into a dog. You can do what else, do whatever you like. But at this stage in the uh, development of photography as an art form, so photography had been around for about a hundred years before Man Ray, as a as a scientific tool, as a yeah. a way of recording light and image, but as an art form, it was really only the last thirty odd years. Um, Henry Fox Talbot was eighteen eighties, so yeah, around about thirty years as a kind of commercial art form. So this was cutting edge. This was brand new, and this was, you know, people had never seen edited images or would, oh, it would be very rare to see edited images before now. So this would have been turning heads. And like Kiki's. And what I really like is that it's a really simple form of photo manipulation. It's taking an image, adding a layer to it, taking the image again. And it, it feels really simple and something that, you know, if you were interested in art and making your own art, you could perhaps do this at home with an Instax and a Sharpie. And <laughs> you can see what you kind of come up with. Yeah, it is amazing how sort of simple it is and yet at the same time it's brilliant because it takes a it takes a special mind to realize. It reminds me of you know when I've done stuff about historical hoaxes with the double exposure spirit photography that popped mm -hmm. up in like the late 19th century. Like on some level, it's so simple, and on the on another level, to understand fundamentally what's happening with the science there and how you can mask off different areas, and that's yeah. going to create a darker shadow, and that's going to mm -hmm. create emphasis, and all of that stuff. It is, it is really interesting, and and it takes a special mind to be the first one to be doing that kind of stuff to. Mm to look at it and say like, well, how can I manipulate this process? I, I do appreciate the innovation that, that is happening there. And I guess that's part of the, that's one of the tenets of realism or Dadaism is kind of having a tradition and then subverting it or um, mocking it, making a joke out of it um, and seeing, seeing things in a new way, just because you can, just because you're the first person to do that mm. um, makes it all the more fun. And coming back to the image, coming back to Takiki and her back, just like with the addition of these two very tiny marks, like she's transformed from um, from being a, a human into being a violin. Like it is a very subtle 
addition, but I love that it, you know, really transforms the image. And I think there's something to be said for the restraint of only using those two little lines to mm-hmm. transform the image. You know, it's exactly. such a small modification that she still remains so recognizable as herself, but there's this little thing that he's added um, just to sort of hint at something without going over the top, without beating you over the head with it. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if I was doing this, I'd be tempted to add in strings, fretwork, all of that, maybe have a maybe have a bow as a prop, but the restraint is what makes it so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I always like to wrap things up by um, just asking, what type of piece is this? Where does this one belong? Is this one for the Louvre? Is this one for the lab? Or is this one for the loo? As you know, it's British for the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) It is British for bathroom. So we have had a chat about this one beforehand because we both have very different opinions on where it should be and why. So I think it should be in the Louvre. And I think it should be there because it's an image that, again, is very recognizable. It's still very relevant to today for a lot of the reasons that we've discussed. Um, And also in 2022, I believe, um, an early print sold for an astronomical sum of about 12.4 mil. And I think bearing that in mind, it shows that there's still a real hunger for this kind of image. So I would put it in the Louvre, but, and this is a big but, with the caveat <laughs> that more of Kiki's story is told to really help us understand what's going on in this artwork, who is the person that we're looking at, and just to really celebrate an incredible woman who's made an incredible image. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to have a, a curated show of the two of their works side by side from the period that they were together. Exactly. And I really love that like Kiki's face is in profile in this. Um, her profile has been really commented on by people who she's worked with. And there was a Canadian poet, uh, here we go, uh, Joseph Glasgow, who said that her face was beautiful from every angle, but I liked it best in full profile when it had the linear purity of a stuffed salmon. And I think that's <laughs> such a striking image. And I would never think like, Yes, that that person is beautiful. They remind me of a fish. I think he was probably hungry when he wrote that. I I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but um, I love that she's in profile here, so we can really see a lot of her best features from all different angles. But Mark, where would you put this? So yes, I think definitely Louvre, and I think we we love a themed exhibition. Um, so as as you said, we've tried to kind of cross countries, cross borders, cross time through our book. Um, so we reckon a, a whole exhibition at the Louvre on musical bums. So mm. we've got Kiki with her with her F holes, um, <laughs> which is not rude. <laughs> I'm going to have to put a disclaimer on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, the veil, uh, Ingress is Violin, the Violin d'Ingress uh, as, a, as a musical uh, musical bum. We've got Hieronymus, Her- Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. Mm. I'm sure you know of that one. It's oh, the yeah. uh, triptych that was supposed to go on a church altar, which depicts hell. 
Um, one of our favorite elements in that is a, there's like hundreds of little tableaus of, of uh, hellish images. And one of our favorites is the guy who's got musical notations inscribed across his bum. Um, with someone else playing playing a flute or playing a recorder, using his bum as musical notation, um, which is hilarious. But I, I also just love the fact that it was like intended for a church, and it's just like the most <laughs> horrific image that like it it feels like it is drawn from people's nightmares, yeah. and you're gonna put that in the place of spiritual uplifting, you know. <laughs> sure. Although I guess a medieval church, you know, a Renaissance church was probably a lot of fire and brimstone, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Get the story across however you can. Um other musical bums that we were thinking of, um Orpheus charming the animals. There's many <laughs> depictions of Orpheus playing his lyre and walking through the walking through the forest, trying not to get eaten by animals by charming them absolutely naked. Mm-hmm. We've got some work by a Dutch artist called Gerda Wegner, who's got a very flirty accordion player. Yes, Gerda Wegner's A Summer's Day is Ooh, looks I'm like not familiar with that one. It's beautiful. It's a idyllic uh, image from a park where people are lounging around, drinking, eating, uh, enjoying looking at each other. And there's an accordion player who is making eyes at someone who is that going to focus? Oh, it's not going to focus. <laughs> Uh, Have a look in your copy of the book. (laughs) I will look in my copy of the book, but I got to say, I am I am hoping now that there will be a second book of musical bums. We might have to do an entire chapter. Yeah. Beans, beans, the musical fruits. Yeah, but we were also thinking they could quite happily live in the lab. Yeah, there's a lot to learn from from this image. The so we've talked about the kind of history of photography and how it developed and it's an it's an important image to show the rise of the surrealist movement. Um, something I don't think we've mentioned yet. The the image was first published in a magazine, mm-hmm. so it wasn't it wasn't in a gold gilt frame in a gallery. It was um, passed around the the surrealist community in a publication, um, and that kind of helps you understand that surrealism in its infancy it wasn't wasn't really considered a serious uh, serious understanding of art so it wasn't invited into galleries and museums um nowadays for the last 50 years or so it would be quite normal to see a, a surrealist exhibition in a city mm-hmm. gallery or a mm-hmm. national gallery and um, this was a community these were people making zines this was um and i really enjoy that kind of democratic approach to art it's like hey we made this really cool and weird thing how can we get as many people as possible to see it just put it in a magazine, publish it, mm. disseminate it that way instead of saying, oh, you must come to this gallery to really see and appreciate. Because let's face it, we can appreciate art wherever we are. We can we can Google it on our phones. We can scroll through on Instagram. We can read a lovely book. Yeah. Um, there's so many places where we can see art. I really enjoy that um, this was originally published in a way that was really easily, well, more easily accessible than it would have been if it was in a gallery in Paris. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in the the twentieth in the twenty first century, now we know that there are barriers to people feeling at home and comfortable in museums and galleries because they don't feel like their stories being told. They don't see their cultures, their representations, and in the early twentieth century, that would have just been way more emphasised and way more obvious. So, mm. 
having this flyer, having this magazine printed and, and disseminated in a very grassroots way was so anti-establishment. It was so uh, uh, raging against the system. Um, and I think that's really interesting to see just from this image and knowing knowing where it came from. Yeah. And I guess probably also from a practical standpoint, you know, um, even when people wanted to see surrealist artwork in the galleries back then, if Marcel Duchamp's work is any indication, it was put behind a wall like they did with right. the fountain, yeah. you know, um, yeah. the photographs are how they got their work out there. But yeah. I got to say, um, I really appreciate your book that you have put out there. All the photographs that are in it are just a, a lovely and different way of looking at art and sparking some interesting conversations. Um, and I, I really love yep. the work you're doing. So thank you very much. Once again, Mark and Jack, um, writers of the Museum Bums and uh, the book and the Instagram account, both will be linked in the show notes. Thank you. So much. It was so lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.